0: Welcome to the podcast of WISER, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. So hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of WISER. I'm Cameron Blunt, a current fourth-year medical student at Emory University School of Medicine.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Schwieger, and I'm a third year at Emory.
0: And today we are honored to be joined by Dr. Priscilla Strom. She is the first female graduate from the general surgery residency program at Emory University. She completed medical school at Emory University in 1976, general surgery residency at Emory in 1981, and trauma surgery fellowship at Emory University-affiliated hospitals in 1982. She also holds master's degrees in both theological studies and bioethics. She's currently the interim program director at the General Surgery Program at Northeast Georgia Medical Center and practices in Gainesville, Georgia. So the focus of this episode will be primarily about your experiences in surgical residency, as well as your perspectives on how um, training has changed over the years. But first, I'd like to hear a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you were Initially, John DeSantis. Well, I was
2: born in India. My parents were missionaries in India. My dad was a pastor. And I was born in India and lived there basically through high school. And uh, my entire childhood, I was planning to be a nurse and return to India. And I came back to college in, in the States. And through some of the professors at my very small Christian college, they encouraged me to go into medical school. And I really didn't want to go into medical school because who in their right mind would want to be a doctor? know all that training and all the residency and all the responsibility and I was going I don't think so but it just seemed that that's where God was leaving me and so I said okay fine I will if I have to and I got I only applied to two medical schools and I got into two and I chose Emory because it had a prettier campus which is a great reason for picking a medical school and then about a week into medical school I found out it's the most fascinating stuff ever and I just loved it from then on in and so I was still planning to go back overseas and I didn't know if I should you know, what specialty I would, should do because I didn't know if I'd be in a small rural area in a big hospital where I would be. So when I was a senior student, I had the opportunity to go to Ecuador to a jungle hospital for about 10 weeks for an elective. And there was a general surgeon there and there was a family practice doc there. And I realized very quickly, it was a lot easier to learn medicine out of a book than it was to learn surgery out of a book. And so I decided I would learn surgery. <laughs> so that's how I got into surgery. And then, of course, when I got into surgery, I just loved it too. And um, I ended up going. So I did my surgery residency at Emory and trauma fellowship and then ended up going overseas. And I worked actually worked in Bangladesh for 10 years and did a little bit of everything. I did medicine and pediatrics and OB and preventive health and community health and whatever surgery I felt I could safely do there and a little bit of everything. I was there for about 10 years and then right about the time that I was, this was in 1984, was when laparoscopy came in. And when I first heard at a conference that they were taking gallbladders out through small holes, I said, no, they're not. No way that can happen. But then as I found out it was really a thing, I decided, well, I better get back and learn how to do that because if I'm gone for another you know, eight or 10 years, I'll be so far behind the curve, I'll never be able to catch up. And so I basically came back to the States and Found a great place to practice here in Gainesville with a partner who was actually a year ahead of me in residency at Emory, a good friend of mine. And he taught me how to do laparoscopy. And I've been here ever since for almost 29 years. Yeah,
1: That's amazing. do you mind telling us a little bit of man's experiences working in the hospital in Bangladesh? Yeah.
2: Well, when I first went there, it was a very small hospital. It only just opened six months before. And um, they had four people on the medical staff. There was myself. There was an American nurse midwife. We had a Finnish doctor who had done medical school and then done six months of OBGYN and six months of tropical medicine. And then we had a Bengali doctor who residency was at that point was hardly non-existent in that country. And so he had done like a very rotating internship. So there were the four of us providing medical care and the Finnish doctor taught me how to do C-sections because that was not something I learned to do at Emory. And then the nurse midwife taught me when to do C-sections. So the first couple of years I said, "Stacy, you just tell me when to cut them out and I can cut them out. But then as I learned from her, I learned to do a lot of complicated deliveries and vacuum extractions and all kinds of stuff. One of the reasons I was debating between surgery and family practice initially is I'm not, I was not at that point really sort of a gung-ho surgeon. I really liked doing everything. And I felt that in third world country, preventive medicine is so important Community health is so important because you know it doesn't do any good to treat people with cholera and typhoid if you can't provide latrines and clean water and keep them from getting it in the first place. So we did a lot of outreach with that. And because we were short on medical staff, we also developed, I developed a training program first before we called Paramedics, which was a six-month course to just help people and to have people who would help us in the outpatient department. And then a couple of years later, I developed an 18 month course for what we called medical assistants, which were more like physician's assistants. And by the time I left, they were basically running all the outpatient department with doctors there for consults if they needed it. And so, um, and then we gradually added doctors. I did prostates, I did kidney stones, ureteral stones, hysterectomies, everything. And I really appreciated my trauma fellowship because. In trauma, you end up, you open up a patient, comes with a trauma, you open them up and you don't know what you're going to find. And it just gave me very good experience for being in a situation where I'd never seen a lot of the disease processes before, but to get into a situation where you've never seen it before and trying to figure out what to do. And that was what I really felt my trauma fellowship was valuable. It gave me the the wherewithal to think outside the box and to solve problems and to figure out what would be the best thing to do in situations. So,
1: yeah. And how does your experience working in Gainesville now compare to, <laughs> to your time in Bangladesh? Oh, it's like night and day because, um, well, first of all, <laughs> when I
2: first came to Gainesville, at that point we had did not have any kind of a trauma program up here. And so, all the general surgeons in town covered the emergency room and did all the uh, trauma and the acute care surgery that came in and so that was probably for the first twenty years that I was here and Then the hospital uh, felt that they wanted to become a trauma center and because I was the only person on staff at that point who had, had a trauma fellowship, I was tapped to be the first trauma medical director and so for about a year and a half, I helped to get the groundwork going where you have to get policies in place, procedures in place and you know, your ancillary staff and all that kind of stuff. And then I did that for about a year and a half. And then we hired honest to goodness trauma docs and I gave it up. And um, then the trauma program grew and they started taking over the acute care surgery as well. And so then my practice was sort of general surgery in a sense, but I was for a long time, I was the only woman surgeon in Gainesville. And I was fortunate enough that we were able to start doing stereotactic breast biopsies. The radiologists weren't interested because the machine was not where they were. And so my part, one of my partners and I learned how to do stereotactic biopsies. And so I started doing more and more breast, And then we actually got a stereotactic machine in my office. And of course we had ultrasound in the office. So I started doing more and more breasts because women wanted to come to a woman doctor for breast. And so about, oh gosh, probably about eight years ago, I basically gave up general surgery. And so, all I do now is breast. So, it's from doing everything to doing one thing. And I thought I would get bored, but I don't because every single patient is different. Every single cancer is different. Every single breast is different. How you're going to treat it, how you're going to do your surgery, where you're going to put your incision, all this kind of stuff. And the residents who rotate with me, I have an intern with me for two months at a time. And they always start off sort of thinking it's going to be kind of, boring to do. And about a weekend, they say, this is really interesting. And I'm going, I know.
1: Sounds like you've had such a amazing and unique <laughs> career.
0: It's been fun. We had a, a few more questions about Bangladesh. I was just curious about how you were able to learn Bengali and how long it took you to become fluent. Well,
2: um, I think I'm relatively good at languages and I grew up in India and in my parents were in North India when I was young, meaning until I was nine. And so when I grew up, I was speaking Hindi and Hindi is not the same as Bengali. It's not understandable between the two, but the grammar structure is similar and the phonetics is similar. And so I had an ear for that. So I think my accent was pretty good from the beginning. And so when I first started learning it, what i when I first, well, I went to language school for three months in the capital city and I got no mileage out of that. So I went up to the hospital and they had a tutor up there and I worked with the tutor for basically four hours every day. And then in the afternoon, I probably studied for two hours and worked with him for two hours. And then in the afternoons, I would be in the clinic seeing outpatients. And I had a list of questions in English and Bengali of what I wanted to ask, like, how long have you had diarrhea? Or do you have chills with your fever? Or what color is your sputum? Or whatever it was. And so every day I would try to learn a couple more questions. And I had my translators, quote unquote, were two of our nurse aides who did not speak any English. But they were able to take the patient's answers of a paragraph and distill it down into a sentence that actually answered the question I was asking. But just basically immersion for four hours a day, just hearing it and when I would say something and the patients would look really puzzled because they had no clue what I was saying the nurse aide would say it correctly and so then I'd say oh that's how you say it okay and then I would just kind of gradually do that so within six months of being there I actually taught the paramedic course in Bengali but it helped that one of the students was my tutor so if I really got totally where I couldn't figure out how to say something or the students were really puzzled I would say okay Rusan how do you say this and he would You know, because his English was good enough that he could translate for me. So, yeah, basically just throwing yourself into it
0: and doing it. That's really remarkable. I I can imagine that if you're in the setting where you're surrounded by it every day and and you have a need to communicate with patients and other people that you're working with, that you'd pick it up pretty quick.
2: And, you know, medical, it's, you know, it's a lot different when you're focusing on medical terms, which are fairly concrete. That's not to say that at this point I could have philosophical discussions about historical events with a Bengali. I couldn't do that. I mean, it's very, my Bengali is focused to -to day-to-day conversations and medical things. Um, So
1: kind of pivoting a little bit. I wanted to hear more about your experience in medical school and residency. Um, I know you were the first female graduate from general surgery residency, so it'd be great to hear about that.
2: Well, when I was in, yeah, when I was in medical school, I think we had 110 or something like that, people in my class at Emory, and there were 14 women, so we were a distinct minority at that point. And then, well, part of the, you know, when I went into surgery, part of the reason I stayed at Emory was because the faculty were very encouraging of me. I mean, I made no bones about the fact that my plan was to go overseas, and that's why I was doing doing this. And they were all very, very encouraging of that. And so I knew that they would treat me nicely. There was, I think, but it was, but it's interesting. I mean, I think I'm one of those people who I have a fairly thick skin. I think I'm fairly secure. And when people would make, you know, rude remarks. It didn't bother me. I just kind of would shake my head and go on. And I had a, one of my classmates was, I mean, this was the heyday of women's lib, you have to understand. This was in the middle seventies. It was when it was really, it could get kind of vitriolic at points. But part of it was, I mean, if they would say things to me like, you know, well, girls are weak. I'd say, I know I am. So come over here and help me. You know, I didn't get upset about it. I just sort of did it. And I found that once you were on a service, if you worked hard and did what you were supposed to do, after about a week, they'd quit trying to make you mad. And if you persisted in getting mad, they'd persist in riling you up. You know, it's like when you're a kid and you have your brother and sister. If they, if you fuss at them and they get mad, it just eggs you on. Whereas if they just kind of def- turn it away, things calm down. And so, I mean, I really, part of the reason I stayed at Emory is because I knew that people would treat me well. And by and large, they did. People think we should have had a hard time. And I'm going, I don't really think I did at all. I mean, I just, I loved my residency. It was such a good time. It was fun. We worked really hard, um, but it was good. It was good. When I was a chief resident, there were eight of us. And so we kind of got divided out, but four of us would do three months of chief at Emory with the chairman of surgery. And that was Dr. Warren at the time who did a lot of the shunts for uh, portal hypertension back in the day before they had tips. And the other residents who would spend their three months of general surgery at Crawford Long, which is now, what, Emory Midtown? Midtown. Is that what it's called? Okay. Doing just general surgery. And so it was an honor to be chosen because Dr. Warren would pick which residents he wanted on his service. And so I got assigned to his service. And I was kind of fussing to one of the junior attendings that was a good friend of mine. I'm going, I'm going to India, because I thought I was going to India at that point. I'm going to India. I'm not going to be doing these shunts, you know? So he went to Dr. Warren and told Dr. Warren what I had said. So Dr. Warren called me in and said, Priscilla, I hear you don't want to be on my service. And I said, well, Dr. Warren, it's not exactly that. He said, but Crawford Long would be a better experience for you, wouldn't it, given what you want to do? And I said, yes, it would. He said, fine, we'll switch. So I went to Crawford Long, and I worked with an old-timey general surgeon who did hysterectomies. and tonsillectomies and things that I needed to know how to do. And it was awesome. Dr. Warren was just supportive of my career goals and it wasn't a big deal at all. I mean, he wasn't mad that I didn't want to be on his service when <laughs> he was the chairman of the department. You know what I mean? But that was how yeah. they treated me. They were just, they were just good to me. All I can say. Yeah.
1: It's nice that you had that support. Do you feel like you had any um, female mentors that you looked up to or worked with?
2: Nope. <laughs> I don't think she, there were there was when I was a trauma fellow there was I think they had their first female attending there were none around when I was when I was there Mm-mm. well I think my mother was always a little bit of my mentor because she was someone who just knew that this is what she wanted to do and did things and she she's actually always been my hero because she was valedictorian of her class in high school but they could not afford for her to go to college so and she wanted to be a teacher So she went to a nursing school in Minneapolis where they worked eight hours a day. And in exchange for working eight hours a day, they got their nursing education. And so she got her RN. Then she went to college, worked full-time in college as an RN. And then she never nursed another day in her life because she hated nursing. And she's always been, you know, here. I think nowadays we're so, well, what do you want to do? What's going to make you fulfilled? What's going to satisfy you? And she did something that she did not want to do in order to get where she wanted to be. And so she's just always been my hero for that because that's what we should all be that way. Not looking for our, you know, and certainly people who go into medicine, you know, you're not looking for instant gratification. It's a long process. It takes you forever to get where you're going to be, you know, so you kind of know that. But I think that it's it was important for me to know that, yeah, just work hard and you'll get to where you need to be.
1: You make it sound so simple, <laughs> but that's really nice. <laughs>
0: Yeah. 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 She sounds like she has a remarkable amount of strength to, to, to bear the brunt of all of that work in the middle of doing school full time and, and working yeah, full time. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. We wanted to get your opinion on the work hours piece. I, I read an article, a 2014 article entitled Resident Duty Hours Past, Present, mm-hmm. and Future about the 1984 case of Libby Zion, a student who died from adverse drug interactions at a New York hospital. And Libby's father was a lawyer and attributed her death to long hours that residents were made to mm-hmm. work. And then the Libby Zion law was enacted in 1989 in New York state, stating that residents were not to work more than 24 consecutive hours and no more than 80 weekly. And we know that, you know, the 80 hour work week was implemented nationwide in 2003 mm-hmm. by the ACGME after, I think, decades of debates uh, that resulted yeah. finally in duty hour re- reforms. Um, so I'm curious about What surgical residency entailed for you while you were going through Mm. it? I know that for every
2: year, basically, well, third year, fourth year, and fifth year, you were on trauma for three months. And your three months on trauma was basically 24 on, 24 off. And of course, the 24 on meant that at seven o'clock, you turned over responsibility, but you usually didn't get home till like 10 o'clock, you know? But I actually, you know, so we were working. So that was, that's well over 80 hours a week, I guess. Um, I'm trying to think, I presume I had vacations. I presume I had days off, but I don't really remember. Um, Yeah, it was just what we did, you know? I mean, it wasn't something that, and we didn't keep track of it. I mean, now people have to, they have to log all their work hours. I mean, we didn't log anything. Um, I do know that when I finished and even when I was a trauma fellow, because my hours then were basically daytime and they got, I got called in if they needed me at night. My pastor at church said to me, he said, oh, you look so much more rested these days. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I wasn't tired. He said, you were always tired. You know, he could just tell because you just, you get used to that chronic stress and you don't realize, you don't realize what it is. I have no idea how much I worked. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh dear. I know we, you know, we started making rounds at five or six in the morning and probably on most days got home about six or seven at night. But then we, you know, took call. Basically call was every third night that you were on call in the hospital every third night. One of the residencies I applied to, which was somewhere in North Carolina, I don't remember exactly where it was, but they said to us as we were at the, for the interviews and they said, well, the good thing about our program is you're 24 on, 24 off, or you're on every other night call for the first three years. And I said, I just wasted my money coming to this place. I'm not going anywhere that has every other night <laughs> call for 24, you know, for three years. So our call was every wow. third night. So you just get used to it, whatever it is. We didn't have a lot of didactics. We have, we had an M&M conference. Saturday mornings, we had a conference that was sort of like a journal club. We had grand rounds, I guess, once a
0: week. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the whole residency process, it just... uh Seems like a blur when you come out of it. It pro- does. You just because
2: yeah, it's just so
0: all-consuming, and then all of a sudden you go, I can't remember what you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know it's it's not uncommon now for sometimes twenty-four uh, hour shifts to turn into twenty-eight or thirty-hour shifts once um, residents account for it, sign right. out and yeah, and, yeah, yeah, completing notes and other documentation. Exactly. So, uh, do you have thoughts about the current state of general surgery training? I do. I you know.
2: It's interesting because in our, in our residency, there are rotations that people are on where they push up against the 80 hour work week, but there are also a lot of rotations that they're on where the average is 50 or 65, you know? So I always tell people, you know, when you're on those rotations where you really are very busy, don't obsess about doing a lot of studying. But when you're on the rotations that are lighter, that's when you really need to focus. And I tell our residents, I say, when your average hours work is 65, I said, you owe me 15 hours of study. And that just gets you to your 80 hours. And it's supposed to be 80 hours plus your study time. So I think it's, I think that, I think it's not as, it's not as onerous as as it can sound like, because when it says 80 hour work week, it makes it sound like everybody's working 80 hours all the time. I think the, you know, I think that the idea of the 80 hour work week was not a bad one. But I think that the downside of that is that there's a lot more handoffs. And I think there's Mm -hmm. as much patient safety issue with handoffs as there is with tired people. And I think it's been shown in studies when they they evaluate since the 80-hour work week, patient safety issues have not decreased. Mm -hmm. You know, I think think lifestyle, people's perhaps happiness with lifestyle, work-life balance has maybe improved. I think there's a lot of downside to constant handoffs between teams. I don't think that's safe for patients either.
1: I think it's hard to find a happy medium between overworked residents and um, safety and handoffs.
2: I mean, I do think it's good. One of the things that I think is good in modern residencies is there's much more focus on simulation and opportunity for simulation. I mean, we had didn't know what simulation was at all. And so you have to get that experience somehow. And simulation is a, is in a sense, a more efficient way of doing it because you can do a hundred reps in an hour whereas you're only going to do it once or twice on a patient.
0: And I think um, what you said about the different rotations that you do as a resident are true as well, that there are just some tougher ones. Um, And then you manage that work-life balance a little bit better in some other months, but that The reality of medical training and, I guess, having a career as a surgeon is that sometimes it will be stressful and more busy Mm -hmm. than others. And um, you find the balance when you can. Yeah.
1: After all that being said, do you have any advice for future trainees and residency (laughs) and fellowship (laughs) and general surgery?
2: Well, we've just gone through our interview season. Our ranking meeting is coming up in the next week or so. So on these interviews that we've had, people always ask, they say, well, what are you looking for in a resident? I turn that back on them and I say, well, what do you think I should be looking for in a resident? And I think, you know, what people always say, well, you want a team player. That's sort of the thing everybody wants to say is you want a team player. And you absolutely do. You want a hard worker and you absolutely do. I'll say the two things that I'm looking for, because I think those things are sort of a given. Um is I think I want a person who takes ownership of their own education because I can offer didactic opportunities with lectures or grand rounds or discussions or mock oral boards or whatever it is. You know, we can offer those as a faculty, but I cannot put the information into your head. That is something that you have got to do yourself. And so you have to, you know, some people say, well, we need, you know, we we didn't do so well on AB last year. We need more didactic. And I'm going. No, we don't need more didactic. You need to spend more time studying. That's what you need to do. And the same thing with the same thing with simulation. We've got at our hospital, we've got a great simulation set up that's right in the hospital. It's right next to the residence lounge, so they can go in anytime. They have access to it 24 hours a day. There is no real difficulty with them getting in there to practice laparoscopy or endoscopy or for the first year of suturing and tying and all this kind of stuff. I said, it's there, but I cannot do it for you. And I think um, one of the downsides that I see with people is they sort of practice enough to get good at something. And then they think, oh, I've got that down pat and they quit practicing it. And anybody who is, if anybody is a musician at all, professional musicians are practicing all the time. One of my friends is a cellist. He went to a Yo-Yo Ma concert and he came out saying to his wife, oh, I'd give anything to play like Yo-Yo Ma. And she said, you do know he practices eight hours a day. And he said, well, maybe not so much. You know, maybe I don't want to, you know, you know, you cannot, you cannot get good at things. You know, the residents say, when you tie your knots, you make it look so easy. And I said, that's because I've been doing it for 40 years. You're not, you know, you do it and you think it's good, but you got to do that every day for the first two years that you're there for it to stick in your head. Otherwise, your muscle memory does not get given. Anyway, so people can take, take ownership of their own education and the responsibility to do that. That's the first thing. The second thing that I'm looking for in, in residents is people of integrity. And what I mean by that is people that you can trust, people who will tell you the truth, people who will, if they say they're going to do something, will do it. If they forgot and didn't do something, they say, I'm sorry, I forgot. I did not do that. They don't try to cover it up. Patients have to have trust in you. Your co-residents have to have trust in you. Your attendings have to have trust in you if they're going to let you do stuff. And everybody wants to be allowed to do stuff. You've got to be someone whose word can be trusted. You know, you've got to be diligent and pay attention to the details and just be conscientious. And I think that's one of the things that I don't know if you can necessarily teach that in residency. And it's hard to elicit that when you're interviewing somebody. But I think that is so, so important. You just you've got to be a person that people can trust. And just so that's what I'm looking for. People who take charge of their own education and people who I can trust. I think that's the most important things.
0: That's great advice. Those were all of the questions that we had related to path experiences. Okay. (laughs) I'll ask the first one. I'm curious about in your life beyond surgery and being program director, Mm -hmm. what are your current hobbies and interests?
2: Well, I'm a person of faith and I am very involved in my church. And every Wednesday night, I cook supper at church for the Wednesday for the kids program. So we have between teachers and kids. We, it's not a huge church. We probably have about 50 kids and adults eating. And so I'm in charge of, I have other ladies who help me, but I'm the one who's in charge of the menus and the buying the food and getting things organized and stuff. So I love that because it's a good way to get to know the kids. And otherwise you don't get to know the kids, you know, because they remember me because I'm the lunch lady sort of that's <laughs> so I'm doing that. I also um, love animals. Love dogs, particularly. Not so big on cats, but I love dogs. And um, every weekend, I walk dogs with the Humane Society. I go there and spend wow. two to four hours taking dogs out of the kennels and walking them around and taking them to the bark parks and playing with them and petting them and teaching them that dogs need love. And love You're not tempted
1: to take any home with you?
2: I've I fostered a few. I have one of my own, <laughs> and I have fostered some. So part of being a foster is getting dogs ready for their hopefully long-term family. And if I adopted everyone I foster, then who would be fostering dogs, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So you got to look at the long But
1: Other questions. What accomplishment would you say you're most proud of, Mm. work or non-work related?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I think one of the, I don't know if it's a single accomplishment, but when I was in Bangladesh, there was a Bengali, young Bengali doctor who worked with me for several years. And then I went back to visit after I was back in the States and I was, and she was working there. And so I was making rounds with her and she went up and she was talking to a patient. She sat down a patient and the way she examined the patient, the way she talked to the patient, I could hear myself and I was going She modeled herself on me, and that was so awesome, (laughs) you know, that she learned how to be a good doctor from me. And I think that's what I'm seeing in our, you know, our residents now that we're training. Um, You know, you see how they progress and how they go from raw interns to actually now being leaders and teaching the junior residents, and you go, that's just cool to see
1: I feel like we spend so much time training that it might it must be nice to see yourself be a teacher.
2: Well, I never thought of myself a teacher, but you know, I think a lot of positions are teachers. And um I just love it. I mean, I was going to retire three or four years ago until we started GME and I'm having such a blast teaching residents that I'm still working. So, yeah.
0: Cuz it's just fun. It's just to see I've had similar experiences in teaching younger yeah. medical students and pre-med students as well who reach out for mentorship. So I can imagine mm-hmm. going through the whole career process, it must be yeah. pretty rewarding. Yeah.
1: Very last mm-hmm. question that we have sure. for
0: you. Thank you so much for taking the time again. Um, just as a medical trainee and as a career surgeon, what is the best advice that you received?
2: I don't know if I received, I can't really give any specific advice. I think it was just, again, learning to... Be, be part of the team and doing my role in the team, which changes as you go forward. Your role as an intern is not the same as a PGY-2 or a PGY-4 or as a fellow. And I think that I saw that in some of my junior attendings as they were growing, too. And so just work hard. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't fuss. Don't complain. Just do it. And be happy while you're doing it, because it's fun. But I do it because I love it. <laughs> You know, so I think you want to do it because you're fun, not because you're going to make lots of money, not because people are going to think you're awesome because you're a surgeon, Um, enjoy what you're doing, work hard at it, take responsibility to be the best that you can be, and then it'll work out and you'll be successful and hopefully have a great career. Because I think I can't think of anything that I would really have changed in my career. All the steps kind of fell together like the way they're supposed
0: to. That's incredible and I think great uh, parting words of wisdom. So I want to thank you again, Dr. Strong, for being with us here today. We really appreciate you taking it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. Y'all hang in
0: there. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. If you liked this episode, please rate and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also share it with friends and family. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Wiser Podcast for updates. This episode was hosted by Laura Schweiger and Cameron Blunt. It was edited by Cameron Blunt. Music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions.